This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from the following companies. AbbVie, Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Inc., Janssen Biotech, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Merck, and Pfizer Incorporated. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, and today we are discussing case-based discussions in prostate cancer. This is part of a series to help improve the urologic healthcare team's ability to care for patients with advanced prostate cancer. I will let Mike Cookson introduce himself and the case. I'm Dr. Michael Cookson, currently the professor and chairman at the University of Oklahoma, and I work at the Stevenson Cancer Center at Oklahoma City. I'm bringing to you today the changing landscape of advanced prostate cancer treatment, a guidelines and case-based discussion. In Dr. Kelly Stratton's case of a patient with early metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, a patient, the patient will progress uh, from failed local therapy through hormonal management and then ultimately develop early castration resistance. What you can expect to learn from this presentation includes the role of novel next-generation imaging as well as the treatment options and there are many for men who present with early, minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic disease. These include therapies directed at androgen uh, receptor, as well as chemotherapy and the role of immunotherapy, in this instance, specifically the role of sipulucyl T. You can also expect to understand the management of patients with adverse uh, side effects who are treated with immunotherapy in this particular setting. Dr. Stratton, please provide an overview of the case history. So this first uh, case presentation that I have is an early M1 CRPC patient. So case number three, a 65-year-old healthy gentleman who presented as a referral when his prior urologist retired. Nine years ago, he underwent a radical prostatectomy for Gleason 8 prostate cancer. At the time, his PSA was 12. He had uh, no lymph nodes positive, but he didn't have margin positive. Postoperatively, he underwent radiation therapy after about six months. And then for five years, uh, he was followed and he was started on androgen deprivation therapy when he had a rising PSA and some suspicious lymph nodes. For about three years, he had an excellent response. But as you look through your records, you see that his PSA has started to increase even though he's on androgen deprivation therapy. So over the last year, it's gone from 0.4 to 1.0 to 1.5. He has no pain or symptoms and has excellent performance status. On recheck, his testosterone is at a castrate level, less than 20 milligrams per deciliter. LDH, hemoglobin, and alkaline phosphatase are all normal. He has a CT scan and a bone scan obtained with the uh, bone scan at, at right on the screen. The CT scan showed the stable pelvic lymph nodes. His bone scan showed a few new lesions in the ribs and spine. 
So for this patient uh, who has early M1 CRPC, is there a role for next generation imaging? What are his options for treatment in this setting? What side effects should we be aware of? And is there any opportunity for layering of treatments or any sequencing that we should be aware of? What are his options for treatment in this setting? So the uh, treatment options for newly diagnosed metastatic CRPC patients, uh, that includes continuing androgen deprivation therapy and adding either uh, abiraterone plus prednisone, enzalutamide, or docetaxel. For those patients who are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, you can also uh, potentially add cipulosal T. Um, for these patients, we'll also want to consider germline and somatic testing. Of course, we've talked about that uh, across all the different uh, areas of advanced prostate cancer care. So in this patient in particular, he was minimally symptomatic or he was actually asymptomatic. He had excellent performance status. His PSA was relatively low. He opted to proceed with immune therapy and received cipulosal T, which is three treatments over the course of six weeks. He received those without any side effects. He was very curious about his PSA. And although we do not monitor PSA in regards to response to cipulosal T, he checked his PSA had gone up slightly to 1.85. And so after uh, completing his cipulosal T, he transitioned to abiraterone and what had uh, noted an undetectable PSA within three, three months of starting abiraterone. So just as a review, cipulosal T is an activated cellular immune therapy uh, that requires leukophoresis. So the antigen presenting cells are taken away from the patient. They're then um, exposed to uh, a prostate cancer antigen uh, prostatic acid phosphatase and a fusion protein with GMCSF. Two days later, after that's received and processed, the patient gets that infusion back. So it's three days from the leukophoresis. And then that's repeated every two weeks for three cycles. Sibulusal uh, T uh, should be avoided, obviously, in symptomatic patients as it's uh, not indicated for those patients. And specifically, symptomatic in reference to cipulosal T is the need for narcotic pain medicine due to metastasis causing pain. So if a patient is on pain medicine for uh, back pain from working or from some other injury, that doesn't count as narcotics for uh, prostate cancer pain. Uh, but you need to be very cautious about uh, documenting that to ensure that there's no approval issues with cipulosal T. Also avoided in patients who have visceral metastasis such as liver metastasis, we would expect those patients to progress quickly and they may need to be on another treatment. Obviously, if somebody has a very um, short life expectancy, the survival curves for cipulosal T didn't uh, diverge until uh, six months and so you want somebody who can benefit from immune therapy. They also need to have a competent immune system. So if they have autoimmune diseases or if they, have, if they require high-dose steroids, then you would consider using a different treatment. 
Cityducal tea is very well tolerated, as we've discussed. Typical side effects, fevers, chills, headaches, flu-like symptoms, also hypertension or, uh, or, or uh, diaphoresis. Um, events usually occur on the day of the infusion or very, very shortly thereafter. Uh, and they can typically be uh, managed with over-the-counter medicines like uh, Tylenol or uh, Benadryl. <clears throat> For abiraterone, it's a CYP17 inhibitor. Uh, so it's going to cause uh, increase in the mineralocorticoid effects. We try to counteract that by providing a replacement steroid. But if you're uh, not um, careful in a patient, for instance, doesn't take the steroids, you'll see that effect happen. They'll develop hypertension, hypokalemia, edema from increased salt load. And so I, I've certainly seen this in a patient who just absentmindedly started abiraterone without taking their steroid, and they got, uh, they got very symptomatic quickly. Fortunately, they called our clinic and we were able to troubleshoot that. They felt much better once they started their uh, prednisone. When we look at the safety data from the Cougar 302 study, patients also will experience uh, potential elevation in liver function tests. And so uh, in our practice, we'll check uh, liver function tests every two weeks for the first three months. That's what's described on the package insert for abiraterone. And then uh, we'll start to space it out after that three-month period. Some people will check less frequently, but we have uh, caught patients with hypokalemia and uh, elevated liver function tests. <clears throat> For abiraterone, which patients uh, should receive it? Obviously, patients who have uh, metastatic cashier-resistant prostate cancer. You'll be cautious of, of those side effects, hypertension, hypokalemia, uh, steroid-induced hyperglycemia, ele elevated LFTs. You would not want to provide abiraterone as a treatment for patients who, for instance, have brittle diabetes, couldn't, who can't tolerate the steroid, those who have gastric ulcers or rapidly progressing disease or an infection where you'd be worried about taking the steroid. Those with congestive heart failure, you have to be very cautious about edema uh, or exacerbation of heart failure if they're not taking their steroid. And then uh, liver dysfunction, hepatitis, or alcohol abuse. Uh, Enzalutamide is, is another uh, available treatment, and uh, we've looked at the Prevail study, common side effects for enzalutamide. We would be uh, concerned about things like fatigue, uh, hot flashes, falls. So these um, uh, neurologic symptoms can be pretty impressive in patients with enzalutamide, and certainly those who are at risk for falls. Uh, you should be careful with them, those who are already fatigued with ADT. So when you compare abiraterone versus enzalutamide, choose abiraterone for those who maybe have uh, mild pain because the steroids can sometimes help. If they have a lot of fatigue, you would want to avoid enzalutamide, so you could choose abiraterone. Advanced age, typically better, tolerate, better uh, at tolerating abiraterone. Those who have fallen, who've had a history of stroke or seizure, we should go with abiraterone. Enzalutamide would be best for those with diabetes, gastric ulcers, history of chronic infections, uh, baseline edema or CHF. 
and then those with hepatic dysfunction or alcohol abuse. Uh, keep in mind, docetaxel is another option, and particularly you'd want to consider that in those with rapid disease changes, significant symptoms, or visceral disease. Thank you, Dr. Stratton, for your time. In case study, in case study number four, we're delighted to have Dr. Alicia Morgans present to us a case of a patient with advanced uh, symptomatic metastatic castration resistance. In this um, particular case, Dr. Morgans will discuss some of the more advanced therapeutic options, including the role of docetaxel chemotherapy, as well as the role of radium-223. In this particular case, the patient will progress through traditional AR-targeted therapies, and then the evaluation and management will depend upon additional staging, as well as prior treatments to help guide therapy. This is an important concept that is stressed throughout the guidelines in that patients who are failing on a particular type of therapy should be considered for an alternative mechanism of action therapy rather than just simply switching uh, therapy oral agents, for example, within the same class. The importance of thoroughly staging the patient is also discussed, and in particular, when considering the use of radium-223, the patients who are candidates have symptomatic bony metastases. They can have lymph nodes up to, say, three centimeters, but they do not have visceral metastases in order to be considered candidates. Dr. Morgans also reviews the sequencing in this particular uh, disease state and that uh, radium-223 can be used before or after chemotherapy, and she'll walk through some of the nuances of treatment for patients when considering both chemotherapy and radium-223. Thank you. So we'll just review this case. It's a case of advanced metastatic CRPC. Mr. C is a 71-year-old man with a history of CAD with a prior MI in advanced prostate cancer that was diagnosed actually eight years ago. Um, his, he was diagnosed after his PSA was 9.7 and his annual physical. He underwent a prostatectomy. He had a Gleason score that was 4 plus 4 um, and a PT3AN0 post-op PSA undetectable uh, tumor. So after about two and a half years, he had biochemical recurrence. He had salvage radiation therapy. Um, he had six months of ADT with that that was with luprolide. Um, and his pre-treatment PSA was 1.2 at that time. About 18 months later, his PSA increased to 4.7. This was off of ADT. Conventional imaging demonstrated bone metastases in multiple vertebral bodies, as well as his left seventh rib. He was started on ADT and abiraterone, at that point diagnosed with metastatic hormone-sensitive disease, and his PSA natured at 0.05, so a pretty nice nadir. 18 months later, though, after treatment with ADT and abiraterone, his PSA increased to 6.8. Dr. Morgans, what additional tests should be performed? Certainly, when we have someone with a rising PSA, um, in this first setting, we need to repeat the PSA to confirm that it's truly elevated. And as much as I wish that it was often a mistake, it's usually not, but it is important to, to repeat that and just confirm. Also, uh, it's always important to actually confirm that the serum testosterone is in the castrate level, um, because really to document castration resistance, we do need to have the PSA less than or equal to 50 nanograms per milliliter. And that sometimes is not the case. 
Of course, if it's just hovering right around 50, it's probably castration resistant, but it does tell you that you're, you're, you're insufficiently suppressing testosterone. Um, now, we use conventional scans to typically to understand the extent of, of disease dissemination, and that's typically going to be with a technician bone scan and, and a CT of the abdomen, pelvis, and the chest. Um, really, a PET scan is unlikely to change the management um, of what's going to happen in this post-RT setting, and so I don't typically advocate for PET scans. Um, but if a patient has neurologic symptoms, if, if a patient has neurologic symptoms, um, it is important always to get an MRI of the, the back to make sure that the patient doesn't have um, cord compression because certainly we would not want, that's, that's an oncologic emergency in this patient population, we would not want to leave that unattended. Um, what we did discuss a fair amount in our group is that germline and somatic genetic testing and MSI or microsatellite instability testing on the tumor tissue is really important if we don't already have that information. Any patient with metastatic disease is, uh, should get germline testing. Somatic testing can actually happen on a metastatic site, or if you don't have a metastatic site, or if there's only bone metastases, you can actually use primary prostatectomy tissue to, um, to do somatic genetic testing. Um, and because these mutations are generally truncal or they happen early on in the evolution of prostate cancers, they will often be in that uh, primary prostatectomy specimen. If you have none of those options for somatic testing, you can do circulating tumor DNA through a liquid biopsy uh, platform, though that's generally considered um, not the gold standard, but certainly is a reasonable backup if you need it. Should the patient undergo repeat biopsy if progression is identified? Well, MCRPC is really diagnosed by progression on imaging and that rising PSA in the setting of a castrate level of testosterone. So from my perspective, a biopsy is not required. We did have some folks in our group mention that if you're doing a clinical trial or, or some other reason that you would need to get tissue for clinical care, you could do a biopsy, but it isn't required to um, diagnose metastatic CRPC. Um, one thing that we also discussed is if, the, if we see progression of disease that's really atypical, so a really low PSA out of proportion to the degree of progression, that is a setting where we would, would want to have a biopsy. Or if we see atypical spread, so low PSA and now we have a liver that's chock full of what looks like metastatic lesions, we would want to have a biopsy. We would want to understand if the patient had undergone some sort of small cell or neuroendocrine differentiation. And certainly we'd want to understand if the patient actually was developing multiple myeloma or some other malignancy that would be treated, of course, differently than prostate cancer. Um, so, but if the tissue is easily accessible, it's needed for somatic tissue testing, if it's needed for a clinical trial, of course, a biopsy is an option. What are the remaining treatment options that prolong life in this scenario? Um, so we talked in our group about PARP inhibitors, if appropriate, pembrolizumab, if appropriate, um, and the PARP inhibitor that is, that is um, approved after just an AR targeted agent is Olaparib. Um, Rucaparib is only approved after a taxane has been given as well. Um, if th there's bone-only metastatic disease, radium is an option. If the patient's uh, asymptomatic, Cipulus-LT is an option. Docetaxel is an option. In terms of what factors may differentiate these treatments from a physician's perspective? Certainly always the prior therapy. So as we talked about in our group, and I'm sure you talked about in yours, we would avoid an AR targeted therapy after a previous AR targeted therapy. We just had progression of disease on abiraterone. For a large majority of patients, 
this a second AR targeted agent like endalutamide will be ineffective. And even in those patients in whom it is effective, for the most part, the average time to progression, radiographic progression is about two and a half to three and a half months. So for most patients, it's not going to be a sustainable effect um, and it's not going to provide a real benefit. The other thing that we think about is clinical features, whether the patient's symptomatic, asymptomatic, the performance status of the patient, can the patient actually take chemotherapy or is that really not the best option because the patient's too frail? The location and degree of metastatic disease, is this bone-only disease? Is it visceral disease? Is it rapidly progressive and causing symptoms or not? Um, People also think, I think, about the requirement to collaborate with other groups. So if you want to give something like radium and you have to collaborate with nuclear medicine or with radiation oncology, do you have the workflows in place, the contacts to make that happen easily? I encourage everyone, of course, to establish those connections because you will need radium. Um, it is one of the, the tools that we have, um, but, but making sure that that's in place before the the moment that the patient needs those things, um, like radium, is really, really important. Um, and then, of course, prior authorization for things like Olaparib, um, particularly if there might be a copay and prior authorization required, um, that could be a challenge. How about factors that may differentiate these treatments from a patient's perspective? From a patient's perspective, that copay is going to be very, very clearly uh, high on many patients' lists. Um, whether the drug is oral, whether it requires um, coming into the infusion room and getting an IV infusion in clinic is very important to patients, um, especially in the pandemic, whether the, the patient will have immunosuppression through uh, or myelosuppression because of chemotherapy can be critically important. And even though we see some cytopenias with things like radium and elaparib, for example, these generally aren't really uh, myelosuppressive to the extent that patients would have a, a depressed immune system. Now, of course, people can get COVID with completely robust immune systems, but anything that keeps them away from even going into the hospital with things like neutropenic fever can be really important to a patient right now. Um, many men are concerned about hair loss, whether that's a personal preference, whether it has to do with work, whether it has to do with them feeling like other people they've seen with hair loss have looked ill and that really uh, negatively impacts them. Um, it doesn't matter what the reason may be, but many men don't want to lose their hair. Um, the expected effect in terms of symptoms, how fast they come on, whether their patients will have to lose time with family, lose time from work, um, concerns about upcoming events, missing weddings, graduations, those kinds of things due to treatment or feeling ill from treatment all come into play. So these are all things that we don't know about unless we ask our patients, um, but are really critical. Which of the following is appropriate for this patient who has symptomatic, progressive, metastatic, castration-resistant prostate cancer with bone-only metastasis? Radium, which is uh, which is absolutely correct. So um, in this case, if we had said docetaxel, that would also be correct, but enzalutamide is not correct because we've already had an AR-targeted agent. Cipulus LT is not correct because we have symptomatic progression. Platinum, platinum doublet chemotherapy is not correct because this is not uh, neuroendocrine differentiation or small cell. And cabazitaxel, although it's possible um, with some insurance carriers or some reasons like, oh, the patient actually has pre-existing severe neuropathy or the patient has what other other, whatever other complication um, may push you in that direction, it's generally used after docetaxel. So just to remind us about Radium. Uh, radium is actually a calcium mimetic, which 
Um, we can see here in this periodic table of, of the elements, it's not here to stress anyone out. It's really just here to demonstrate that we all remember that there are these families of elements that have very similar behavior within a family. And the alkali earth metals are the light blue category that we can see here that includes both calcium and radium. Um, and again, the properties of agents within a family or elements within a family are very similar. So when, when radium is in the bloodstream, it's actually uh, perceived as calcium. It's, it's taken up into the bones, incorporated into the hydroxyapatite matrix. Um, and once there, because it, it's believed to be calcium, once there, it gives off a large alpha radioactive particle, which is so big that it travels very, a very short distance, six to 10 cell lengths, but has a massive uh, new, uh, massive radioactive punch, and so kills those cells within its um, within its uh, area. There, it was studied in the Alsimka trial, which was an interesting study because it included patients with metastatic CRPC who had at least two bone metastases. Of course, no visceral metastases. And the part that I thought was most interesting is that patients had to be post-docetaxel, which is pretty standard, or they had to be ineligible for docetaxel also relatively standard because not everybody is gonna be eligible for that kind of a therapy, or they had to refuse docetaxel. And when we look at the patient population included, it was about a third, a third, a third in terms of um, who was included. And this is probably how its pre and post docetaxel label was, was designed. Um, certainly the patients were stratified in terms of their bisphosphonate use and their prior docetaxel use. They were randomized two to one to receive radium plus best supportive care or best supportive care, just under a thousand patients. And here we can see the overall survival with a hazard ratio demonstrating a 30% reduction in mortality here um, as compared to the best supportive care with uh, radium survival demonstrated in that blue line with a median overall survival of 14.9 months versus 11.3 months for best supportive care. Um, radium was also studied in the ERA223 trial. I think we've, we've heard a little bit about this. This was the population of patients with MCRPC who were asymptomatic or just mildly symptomatic, who were essentially candidates to start on abiraterone therapy, and they were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive abiraterone with or without radium for a total of six cycles, which is standard. And they were monitored um, for this primary endpoint of symptomatic skeletal event, free survival, and then secondary endpoints are standard overall survival, radiographic progression-free survival, and others. And here, we can see what um, you know. I think we've already heard about, which is that patients who were in that combination arm had a much higher level of fracture than patients who were in the abiraterone alone arm. And you can see that highlighted in red here, 40% of the excess fractures in that combination arm occurred within the first six months. Um, and these were predominantly osteoporotic fractures, as you can see if you look down that little table there. Can radium 223 be used before chemotherapy? Well, it is FDA approved for patients lacking visceral metastases before or after chemotherapy. But as I alluded to before, it does require a partnership between the treating doc and nuclear medicine or radiation oncology, depending on the practice. And perhaps there are others who might be involved in other settings, but these are the, the most common partners that I've heard of. Most likely, um, it is more likely for us to be able to give a patient all six cycles of radium if we do it in the pre-chemotherapy space versus the post-chemotherapy setting. 
And we know that the more cycles of radium, like any drug for the most part, um, that we're able to administer, the more benefit patients will get from that therapy. Um, and interestingly, there was a post hoc analysis or an analysis of uh, essentially an expanded access um, group um, that was enrolled in Europe that demonstrated that asymptomatic patients who received radium actually had more benefit than symptomatic patients. In general, being asymptomatic is a much better prognostic um, factor than being symptomatic, and this may be part of the reason. And so here we go, the early access program um, enrolled asymptomatic and symptomatic patients with bone-only metastases, and the overall survival was superior in asymptomatic men and this is what I found most striking. The hazard ratio shows a 52% reduction in mortality. That's pretty dramatic. Um, again, we know that being asymptomatic is a good prognostic sign, um, but this is pretty, pretty substantial. So in this case, the patient received six cycles of radium, had improvement of his back pain after two cycles. He tolerated it well, had minimal fatigue, mild nausea, no hair loss, which was really important to him. His CBC after finishing his treatment uh, included a mild anemia with a hemoglobin of just over 11, but no cytopenias otherwise. And three months after completing his radium, he had fatigue, but otherwise was very active. His lab, uh, labs demonstrated a PSA of 37.3. Um, this was consistent with progression of his PSA and a CT and bone scan demonstrated radiographic progression as well in the left femur pelvic lymph nodes, and several small pulmonary lesions with the largest being one centimeter. And really to emphasize, the reason that I wrote in here that there's radiographic progression is that in most cases, we look for radiographic progression as, as our main reason to change therapy um, rather than PSA progression alone, though um, that's not a hard and fast rule, certainly. And if a patient has symptoms or clinical progression, we would absolutely change therapy uh, even without radiographic progression. Um, the additional options that we know for MCRPC, this patient's already had abiraterone and prednisone, but we also have at our uh, disposal docetaxel, cabazitaxel after docetaxel. Our group just talked about how cabazitaxel, um, if given at the 20 milligram per meter squared dose, may be a little bit more tolerable for some patients, particularly those with extensive peripheral neuropathy, for patients who have nail changes, for patients who have a lot of fatigue. But in general, we give docetaxel followed by cabazitaxel. For this patient, if the patient had MSI high, pembrolizumab would be an option. Olaparib if the patient had a DDR mutation. Rucaparib again, only an option after air targeted agent and uh, a taxane. So here's another response question. Which of the following is appropriate for this patient who has symptomatic progressive MCRPC? I think we actually did these questions, did we not? Oh. Okay, with bone-only metastases, um, and it looks like I gave you the answer by clicking too much. Sorry about that, guys. We're not going to do this response option. Um, but if we have symptomatic progressive MCRPC, bone-only metastases, um, this patient, I think, actually had lung metastases after treatment with radium. Um, but still, with lung metastases, um, docetaxel would be the best option. Remembering the patient had abiraterone and zalutamide is not a good option. We have to change that mechanism of action. Cabazitaxel is typically given after docetaxel, and platinum doublet chemotherapy is typically given for small cell differentiation or neuroendocrine differentiation, not typically in this setting. So really just to 
sort of bang you over the head with this limited benefit to sequencing AR targeted therapies. There are multiple studies that demonstrate the limited benefit. Um, and here we have just a few of them um, demonstrating just minimal benefit, um, meaning that patients had maybe a PSA response, maybe some slight radiographic um, lack of progression, but generally uh, radiographic progression occurred within two and a half to three and a half months. We can see this actually by looking at the control arms of the CARD study, um, which was in patients who had already had AR-targeted agents and docetaxel and were randomized to, treatments with, to treatment with the alternate AR-targeted agent or um, cabazitaxel, saw rapid progression on that alternate AR-targeted agent, or patients in the PROFOUND trial who had, again, randomization to elaparib or the alternate AR-targeted agent, rapid progression on the alternate AR-targeted agent. And here we have the profound trial, so you can see what I'm talking about instead of just hearing me talk about it. MCRPC patients who had DNA repair defects randomized after progression on uh, abiraterone or enzalutamide to the alternate abiraterone or enzalutamide or elaparib. And we can just see the elaparib arm in purple versus the, that alternate AR targeted agent in the more purpley blue purple. Um, with just a very rapid progression. So the median radiographic progression-free survival in the alternate AR targeted agent was about three and a half months. Um, we also know that docetaxel is effective, which is great because um, we've had this treatment around since about 2004, and it's nice to continue to have this agent around. It's effective both in disease control and also in terms of symptomatic control. So in summary, sequencing AR-targeted agents, even if separated by chemotherapy, as it was in the, the CARD trial and, and in some patients in the PROFOUND trial, is rarely effective in controlling disease. Radium can be used before docetaxel and may be consistent with patient preferences, but it may not be. You really have to ask the patient about what he wants as we're trying to make these choices with, with these individual men. And novel mechanisms of action are key in choosing the next treatment. Always ensure that germline and somatic testing are completed to understand the full spectrum of treatments available to your patient. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Morgans. For more information, please visit auanet.org university.